pray that you will speak through me, and uh, God, you know the allergies I've been dealing with, and so I just pray you give me uh, a few more minutes of my voice, and you can have it for the rest of the day, if you'll just bear with me on that. Father, I pray that you empower people through story, whether that's a story found in Scripture or whether that's a story told because you continue to write Scripture through the lives of, of each of us. So, Father, I pray that we find comfort, that we find uh, encouragement, that we find strength by hearing the stories that are continuing to be written by you. And God, for somebody who thinks they don't have a story this morning, I pray that you would make it very clear and evident that they, in fact, do have a story. And God, I pray that they come to realize that story and they praise the God who gives them that story. And then they will use that to witness to your goodness. So, Father, we just pray this morning as we move into this jump motion that, God, you would give us the courage and the strength to do so. And we pray this through your son's name. Amen. We left off last week talking about how you are a gifted individual. I don't know you. I don't know what you're good at. But I know this, that you are a talented, gifted individual because I know the God who created you. And God does not skip over anyone. God does not equip. God does not gift anyone. And we said that you were made for a specific purpose. You were made for a specific reason. The issue is we don't always immediately identify our giftedness. Therefore, we don't always step into our giftedness. So I want to kind of just tell you the biggest jump moment I've ever had in my life. But in order to do so, I've got to take you back a little ways. So I want to take you back to about 2007. And this is where Wellhouse was really birthed, and you're kind of doing the math, and you're going, hold up, I've been kind of with Wellhouse from day one. I don't think it was 2007, so let me just kind of unfold some things for you. I had been in ministry for several years, and, and uh, full-time ministry, I was in student ministry for quite a while. I was kind of uh, helping mature and, and develop faith in 6th or 7th through 12th graders, even into college, and, and a part of that, I was, I was on several church staffs as what would be considered kind of lead staff positions, and um, I, had, I had rapidly had some discontent that was beginning to build. And what I figured out, that it was actually what I'm going to call holy discontentment. And what I mean by that term, holy discontentment, was this, meaning that, that the current situation that I found myself in and had been in at that point for several years, it just wasn't matching something that I believe and now I know that God was, was, had developed in my DNA and, and the church that I was currently serving at, it, it wasn't matching what I believed was God's specific design for the church. And it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't even necessarily entirely always a negative thing. But as I looked at culture changing, as I looked at the community and the way it was rapidly changing around us, when I looked at the diversity that exists in our community, and then I would walk in and, and, and kind of do church, if you will, there was this holy discontentment that was starting to raise. This is 2007, 2006. And I began to ask God questions. God, why can't I be satisfied? And I felt guilty for that. Like, God, you've blessed me with a job, and you've blessed me with great students and families. Why am I not feeling content? Why am I not feeling satisfied? And so I just kind of shelved that and I would kind of move on. And what I, I grew to realize was that I was never going to be okay just managing the expectation of status quo. 
I was never okay. I was never going to be okay maintaining a machine that would run semi-smoothly at times but didn't seem to be going anywhere. And here's what I now know and I realize. That holy discontentment always precedes great vision and breakthrough. And God needed to walk me through some years and moments of holy discontentment because it made me hungry. Not hungry for more from God. It made me hungry for more of God. And so this hunger began to build. I wanted more. And it wasn't like this selfish more. I wanted more from the churches I was serving. I wanted more for the community that needed the churches. I wanted more. I wanted more of God. And, and, and it wasn't for myself, but I believe that Jesus and his church and the message that Jesus preached and then left over to the church had more to offer than what I was seeing it offer at times. So one day, around 2007, I was driving through Mount Juliet. For those that don't know, that's way across town, right? If we'd only build a bridge, we could be there in about three seconds. But I've always heard that Mount Juliet didn't want Hendersonville riffraff. But then I go to Hendersonville, and I heard that Hendersonville didn't want Mount Juliet riffraff. And so they just didn't build a bridge. So I was way over in Mount Juliet, and at that time I was kind of serving closer over there. But I was in this area that now is known as Providence. And guys, then Providence, if you know anything about Hendersonville or uh, Mount Juliet, it's just this massive development. But guys, it was still a field. So 2006, 2007, I was driving through there, and the dream for a well house was birthed in my soul. And not so much the name, but the vision was birthed because I saw things in those fields that, I did, that weren't there. And I saw the possibility of God doing something in those fields that weren't there. And about the same time, God introduced me to some older men that would forever change my life. Men by the name of Lester and Ray, Shane and Charles, and they were dreamers too. Didn't know, kind of like I, myself, I didn't know what to do with these dreams, but we would sit and we would dream and we would talk and, and, and we would stand on the edge of the cliff, but we never jumped. And we would walk out there and go out there for lunch and we would go, man, what if? And man, we could, we could do. And, and it, was this, it was this movement of not taking a church, but it was more of starting something that we believe God had planted deep in our heart, but we never jumped. And here's why. At that time, I was making $38,000 a year. For some of you, that's not a lot of money. For some of you, that's significant money. And the question that loomed was this, how would I make a living? How would I make a living? I mean, if I jump out into this and, you know, turn in a, a resignation and I just kind of, like there's nothing concrete and I'm going, how in the world am I going to make any money? And so this insecurity surrounding security, the uncertainty of finances crippled me and I could not get around it. I would get all jazzed up, and I'd, I'd be like on, on this dream cloud of what God could do, and then I would, you know, look at the real world, right? I'd go, we just bought a house, and, you know, Lori's working as well. I mean, what am I supposed to do with this? And then you couple that with a second issue that lingered in my life, and it was this. What will people think, or how will they respond to me? 
And I'll be honest with you, it was namely family for me. I came from a tribe that, that was of a more traditional roots, and, and I love and I appreciate everything. And my dad and I have had beautiful conversations about this, but I thought if I were to step slightly away from that, what happens? I mean, am I going to be ousted? Am I going to have this sense or, or, or this, this rejection that would suddenly enter in my life? And the thought of rejection, whether it be a family member or a friend, was absolutely crippling. So you get these two things together, right? You get money and you get this fear of rejection. I just stood. And so between those moments in 2014, I couldn't let go of the dream, but I also couldn't let go of my fears that absolutely enslaved me. It caged me. The thought that surrounded the need to provide and the desire to be wanted and loved for more than who I am, but to be loved for what I do, absolutely was crippling. Simply put, I thought the risk was just too high. I thought the risk of finances and I thought the risk of relationship was too high. And here's what I now know. They were all lies. It took me a while to get there, but it was all lies. And they were lies that made sense to me. Jason, those are legitimate concerns. Those are concerns that you need to prioritize. And what I figured out is that Satan doesn't just lie in obvious ways. He lies in ways that are logical ways, but nonetheless, they're still lies. And so here I was believing the lies. So instead of following God's prompt at that time in my life to jump, I just floated. I stepped into a couple more roles at another church, this time a larger one. And with that came more people and more resources and more money, which by the way were just all distractions from what God had ultimately called me to do. But I also noticed that just having more people and more money and more resources didn't necessarily lead any faster to the conversations that God calls us all to, and that is introducing people to the saving grace and mercy and love of his son. So when I found myself, I wasn't having any more conversations about Jesus here than I was there. And I get it that part of that was on me, but part of it again was just this continuation of holy discontentment. I wasn't in any better position both personally or professionally to, 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 to show or invite someone into this grace-filled, loving community than before. But here's what I was also beginning to realize. It was detrimental to everyone involved. It was detrimental to myself and Lori. <laughs> we weren't growing. If anything, we were beginning to shrivel. We were beginning to just kind of, it's that Homer Simpson moment, you know, where he kind of disappears into the shrubs. I was finding myself wanting to disappear in the shrubs, and she was already in the shrubs. But I also realized this. It was detrimental to the ones that I was currently serving. The ones that God had placed in my care, given me the responsibility to minister to. My prolonging and my momentary inability to jump was keeping me from fully and completely and effectively serving and investing in people. 
And so as a result of that, trust wasn't there. Relationships to its fullest weren't there. And you begin to couple those things. It's just a combination for some potentially really negative moments. Meanwhile, the hunger is continuing to grow. I'm watching other people jump. I'm watching other people step into these things, and I'm going, God, I, I don't know why it is. I mean, I, I, I know, I feel like I know how, and I, I, but God, I just, and, and I, I was, again, this holy discontentment didn't go away with more stuff, more resources, more people. Guys, if anything, the anxiety that was caused by the expectations to maintain the bigger people was even worse than before. It grew larger than anything I had ever experienced to that point, and it was growing unhealthy in all sorts of ways, multiple ways. And I would set, and, and again, none of this was birthed out of selfish motivation. I would pray hard, God, just, God give me a pure heart. God, am I, am, am I feeling these things for the right reasons? Do I want what I want for, 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 because that's what you want? And I would pray these things, and I would pray, God, give me a pure motive, and I begged God behind closed doors and with close friends. Just show me what you want. I want the things that you want. God, above all, I want to be kind. I want to be tactful. I want to be timely. I want to be loving. I want to be mindful of people. See, I didn't want anyone to get involved or I didn't want anyone to, to get involved in, in this hurt. I didn't want anyone involved getting hurt. I didn't want anybody, because of my holy discontentment, getting kind of caught in a negative way. I didn't want anyone's faith to somehow be shaken because of some things that I wasn't dealing with. I wanted everyone to thrive in their own environments, whatever that environment may be. I wanted everyone to experience their best. But I knew in order to do that, that my environment needed to change because I was never going to become my best. I didn't want to set out to impose my dream on anyone else, especially those that weren't looking to dream a different dream than maybe they were currently involved in. And then one Saturday night, May 25th, 2012, I called my administrative assistant, Sharon, at that point, and I said, hey, uh, we need to strike all the slides that I put in. God has laid something on my heart. And she went, oh, boy. <laughs> I, was, um, I was in a series called Kairos at the time. And Friday when I left the office, everything was hemmed up and ready to go. Everything, you know, multimedia was there. I was actually doing a series, or I was doing a lesson that Sunday out of John chapter 3. Uh, and it was going to be when, God, when good isn't good enough. And, and, uh, but sometime during the night and Saturday, God had placed on me one last time. This is the environment that I meant for you to be a part of creating in my church. And here's what I preached on. So that Sunday, May 25th, I pulled up a bar stool, kind of like this. And I just told the story of the prodigal son. And I just posed the question in that moment. I, I said, what kind of church are we? What kind of church do we want to be? See, because in that story, there's several different factors. You have the father who creates an environment for his lost son. And then you have a big brother 
who thought the environment that was created by the Father was way too loose, that it was not deserving. And so the, the, the realization was this, was that God rocked my word, world because God says, Jason, I create parties. I create parties. I create parties. I create parties. See, God throws parties when lost people come home, when little brothers returned. And, and, and in that moment, it was like God said to me, Jason, you are missing the party because you're busy rearranging chairs and tables in the ballroom. He said, do you want to be a party coordinator or do you want to be a, a, a planner that your job is just to set up things but never get to experience the party? And I thought, well, God, you know me. I like a good party. And it was in that moment, May 25th, and if God didn't confirm it by then, by May 27th when mail started to roll in, he definitely confirmed it. It was time to jump. And it had nothing to do with where I was at. It had everything to do with what I had been avoiding. It was time to jump into a calling that God was calling me to and had been for quite some time. It was a calling to create a space for people to feel uncomfortable feeling imperfect. It was about creating environments where they could understand what God had ultimately designed and had planned for them. They didn't know this. I didn't know what. I didn't know how. I didn't know where. I didn't even know when. I just knew I was ready. I had my toes hanging off the edge. And guess what came rushing back in? Jason, how are you going to make a living? And the irony in all of it is that now, fast forward, I'm making over double what I was making in 2007. And so I began to, for a moment, calculate, and I put the pen down and said, God, it does not matter. I felt peace for the first time with the unknown not having clear answers for all the questions that had haunted me for nearly a decade. And, and I had dealt with this, this psychological entrapment of what if rejection comes. And here's what I was beginning to learn, and it unfolded beautifully, that I learned to not only trust the love of my Father in the heavenly sense, but I was learning to trust my Father in an earthly sense. So here's what happened. Over the next two months... God began to prepare Lori and I's heart to, to take this leap. And I just prayed, God, show me, this, show me the timing, show me the timing, show me the timing. But he was preparing our hearts to take a leap and a jump into what has been the greatest, but yet that time scariest, without a doubt, most amazing jump of faith I've ever been a part of in my life. So I resigned in August 2014. And I loved the moment because behind closed doors, everyone celebrated this faith. They celebrated this, this direction. They celebrated my vision. In fact, I can remember even one of my leaders at that time said, Jason, I'm so happy for you because you were never created to be a manager. You were created to be an entrepreneur. Now go. 
And we celebrated this moment. And again, I didn't know what, I didn't know where, I didn't know when, but I knew why. So I walked out of there, not knowing what God was going to unfold. No plan, nothing in my back pocket, just going, okay, God, here we go. And then there were some things that began to just kind of fall into place unexpectedly. I wasn't even looking to find what I found. See, Lori and I, we were planning on just kind of taking some time and resting. We'd been spending some time down at Cross Point, just kind of going in and crawling as high up in the balcony as we could. And, and uh, we were just kind of resting there, and I was planning on being a barista. You laugh at that, but it really was part of the story. I met with Rob, who owns the uh, well coffee shop, and I said, all right, man, I love that you've taken one of the things I love, coffee, but, man, you're doing ministry. You know, you're like, you're like teaching God's word out of this place, and, I, I, man, I... Can I get a coffee shop up north? And, you know, what's it going to take? And I thought that's what God was kind of. And, and Rob looked at me and he said, you're not made to make coffee, Jason. You're made to pastor people. I'm not hiring you. And I thought, well, okay. <laughs> and here's what I was realizing, that God was, again, holy discontentment was leading to breakthrough. It was leading to vision. See, God was already preparing a movement here. I got invited to lunch by the guy who operates the skate center. And he hadn't, at this point, I don't think he was even aware that I had resigned and was kind of on to what's next, even though I didn't know what was next. And we're sitting at lunch down at Sam's off the water. And he says, hey, I got a thought. I was standing and looking out at about 22,000 square feet of the skate center floor and just had a thought. How can we use this for the glory of God? You got any ideas? And I thought, well, if you... He said, well, it's, it's yours if you need it. You're, and I said, well, you do realize that like, I, I've stepped away. And he goes, even better. And see, God was, 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 was positioning these things. And then I remember sitting down with Gary O'Brien, who is one of our shepherds now. And, and he invited me to just pray and talk. Just talk and then let's pray. And then let's pray and let's talk. And just see kind of what you're thinking, what I'm thinking. Let's just see what happens. And so we began to just pray. I began to go to the skate center. And I would literally get out of my car and walk the perimeter of the skate center. I remember this like it was yesterday. On lap number three, I prayed specific, I would pray something different each one. And on lap number three, I, I started at the stop sign, and, and if you've been over there, you kind of know that's where I park my truck. On lap number three, I prayed the entire lap. God, are you sure you want me? Are, are, are you sure this is, I'm the one. You know, I, I don't really feel equipped for this. I'm out here. I'm kind of treading water. You know, I'm, I've jumped off the side. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Am I supposed to just be support staff somewhere? Am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to? And I get back to the place I started. I hope this doesn't freak anybody out. I don't know where you are. I think God does things for, for, for specific reasons. And so I get there, and I'm about to turn to start lap number four. And I see a penny laying on the ground. Now, if you're like me, you look. Is it on heads or is it on tails? Because you leave the tails sitting, right? <laughs> it was on heads. So I thought, you know, I'm kind of out here in the middle of this water. I do. I, I could use some good luck. So I picked this penny up. I look at the date. And the date was minted 1977. It's my birth year. So I just took that and kind of taped it in the front of the journal and said, oh, I guess there's my question, God. I mean, 1977, Penny, who's, who's going to find it? You know, and so I began to, again, pray into that. Not about the penny, but I began to pray, and God just continue to let things fall into place, and things did. And I could go on and on and on about how God positioned 
all of these. And at that point, I wasn't ready to tell this story. I had a lot of people asking, like, just tell us, you know, what happened. What, 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 everybody was thinking something happened, and I didn't have the courage at that point, nor did I have the strength at that point to tell them that what happened was me. And then on two, in November of 2014, I jumped into the most amazing adventure again I've ever been on. And I say to this point because God's not finished. So why do I tell you this? I sit here as your leader knowing what it feels like to jump. To make big jumps. So when I tell or encourage or invite you to jump, to trust God, I promise he'll do what it is that he promises he'll do. I want you to know that I don't lead from a superficial bird's eye view. I want you to know that I lead from a place where I cannonballed off the side of a boat. And it has been the best time of my life to this point. Have there been some rough moments? Absolutely. Have there been some lean financial moments? You bet. But Lori and I have not gone without for a single day. And God has provided in one way or another over and over and over. And that's what he does because that's who he is. And guys, he has completely transformed me. He has com completely transformed my ministry. He has completely and continues to completely transform my relationship with my wife. And I have watched him transform the lives of some of you and I have watched him transform the life of a community. And I love this because it's just getting started. And here's the encouragement. Guys, if he'll do this for me, he'll do it for you. I'm probably the least deserving guy in this room for a story. And I kept praying for years, God, give me a story. And he said, well, when you're ready to open the journal, I'll start pinning the story. And I know if he'll do this for me, he'll do it for you. And if he's done it once, he'll do it again. Now, here's where I'm at. The only regret that I'm left with is this. And I'm working through this regret. The only regret I'm left with is this. I delayed the jump. I delayed the jump. I allowed lies about money. I allowed lies to create uncertainty of false security. I allowed not trusting my own relational value. See, I thought that my earthly family, my earthly friends would only love me if I did certain things. And I, I remember my dad specifically saying, you know, son, there may be some things that I'm not, you know, comfortable with or agree with. But he said, son, you could sell crack and I would love you. And guys, you don't realize the weight that's taken off in those moments. I let my overall lack of faith get, into, get in the way of God unfolding a new chapter, a new ministry, a new journey. And yeah, God was still at work in those moments and he was still equipping me and teaching me and doing good things through me in those moments. There's still moments I wonder, what did I miss out on because I stood on the ledge so long? And here's the point. Delaying the jump simply delays the journey. 
There's several stories about this, and so just bear with me for a second. I'm going to tell you a story that's really come near and dear to me. There's a story about this in 2 Kings chapter 5, and, and I'm going to set the story up just kind of reading verse 1. Listen to this. There was a guy named Naaman. This may be an unfamiliar story to some of you, but it's beautiful. You'll love it. Now, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. If you know anything about leprosy, it was this incurable, you know, you just kind of got, your your skin just kind of rotted away. And not only did you end up losing life, you lost community because they would throw you on the outside of, of town. You couldn't, you were quarantined. You couldn't be around your family. You couldn't be touched. And so he knew it was a spot, but he knew it was going to turn into more than a spot. It was going to eat away. And he knew what was coming. And he knew there was nothing he could do about it. So in an earlier battle, if you continue reading, we don't have time to unfold this whole thing, but go and just read this. It's, it's a fascinating thing. So in an earlier battle, they had taken captive a young girl from Israel. If you know anything about Israel, Israel at that time, the Israelites, those were God's chosen people. And so they had taken captive this young girl, and she had been put into his home. She had been made a servant of his wife. So this girl is serving Naaman's wife, so she's obviously very aware of inside news that public had not gotten yet. She knew that he had been stricken with this incurable disease. And so she goes to Naaman's wife and she says, Hey, I know you're probably not going to believe this, but if you'd have him go, there's a prophet in Israel. There's a prophet of God who I think, who she didn't think she knew, had the ability to, 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 to heal him. And so Naaman is told by his wife, like, hey, you know, I don't know if this is worth trying. And at this point, he's desperate, and he says, yeah, I'll try anything. And so he goes to his master. See, there, he only had one above him, and that was his king. So he goes to his king, and he says, hey, here's the deal. You know what I've been, been stricken with. Do I have your permission to go? And the king says, not only do I give you permission, I'll write you a letter. And so in verse 6, it says, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman. He's writing this to the king of Israel. To you that you may cure him of his leprosy. So he packs up silver and gold and clothing because he was hoping that this would be enough to cover the exchange. He was hoping that that maybe if this guy possessed the, the magic, if he possessed what it was this girl said he did, that maybe he, you know, how much silver do you need? He knew there would be some kind of cost involved, right? So he packed up all this stuff and so he sets off to see the king. So Naaman takes his king's letter to their king's letter, the king of Israel, and he presents it in order to cut a deal, what he was hoping would be enough. And so the king of Israel thinks that, are you just picking a fight here? He says, who do you think I am? I mean, I can't kill and bring back to life. You obviously have been mistaken for the God above. You've mistaken me for this. And so he he automatically becomes very not cynical but also distrusting of this because he thinks that his king's picking a a fight. And so he says, I don't want to enter into that. And so he kind of just dismisses it. Meanwhile, Elisha, who is a servant and a prophet of the king of Israel, overhears this. And he says, king, send him my way. Have him come see me. Now, keep in mind, Naaman only interacts with other kings. (laughs) Never would he go to someone's servant for something that he needed. He goes to kings for things that he's needed. But also keep in mind that he's desperate. So Elisha goes home, and Naaman 
says, well, I don't really have any other option, and the king speaks well of him, so I guess that's what I'll do. And so he gets to Elisha's house. And Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. Now get this. Elisha, a servant of the king, sends his servant, so let's go on down the totem pole, out with a message. And here's what he says in verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him and said, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. I love that there's two things there. There's a restoring physically, but there's also a cleansing spiritually that he didn't even know he was in need of. This should have been enough, right? This infuriates Naaman. I came to interact with a king. I got sent to a servant. Now I'm at a servant's house, and the servant sends his servant. It infuriates him. <laughs> Does this man not know who I am? Does this man not know what I have in my pocket, that I've got, <laughs> I've got the letter of a king? Does he not know that I'm second in control? I'm second in charge. Does he not know that I'm an important? He, he can't even come out of his house. Look what he says. Verse 11 and 12. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand over me, call on the name of his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me. And then he goes into this deal like, there's cleaner water. Why the Jordan? I mean, there's better, there's better water. I mean, if we're going to go down this little you know, rabbit hole of this magic trick, there's better water to do this in. And again, there's still this sense that he's hoping can you just do something? Can you wave your hand over? Can you do something? And then, day, I don't know, days, months, goes by. But he still has what? He still has leprosy. And then Naaman, one of his servants, comes to him and says, Listen, I know I'm risking a lot here speaking to you in the way that I'm about to speak to you. But, you know, if he had told you to go do something great, you'd have been all over it. Because you like to be involved in great things. Why is it that you're struggling with doing this simple thing? I mean, what do you have to lose, right? You came hoping. He gives you hope. I mean, just go dip in the water and see what happens. If not, we'll go home. And so finally, Naaman responds, and he jumps. Verse 14, look at this. So he went down, and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And here's what we need to see is that it doesn't just change his current need, it changes his life. It changes his trajectory. When he jumped, look at verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him, and I love this. Now I know. And what does he know? That there is no other God in all the world except in Egypt or in Israel. Pretty good story. Well, let me give you two things and I'm done. First of all, guys, there's a difference in hoping for something and expecting something. I believe Naaman hoped, verse 6, he says that you might cure me, that you may cure me. Man, I hope he can just wave his arm around something. Uh, you know, I hope this foreign prophet that I don't even know, I don't even know this God, I hope he can change my situation. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm wishing, I'm wishing, I'm wishing. But I'm not sure he went there fully expecting to be healed. And what he found was a God of change, a God of restoration, a God of new. And here's what I see. If you trace down to verse 15, we see growth. Now he... New. 
See, there's certainty there. It started with hope. And see, I spent a lot of time hoping, but it wasn't until I jumped that I began to know who God is. See, there, became, there came with this, now I live in this realm of holy expectancy. I just expect God to do great things. And it's not in an arrogant, like I've got God on some sort of string, but it's God, I've seen you do so much, and I've seen you do this again and again and again, so I don't, I don't come into your presence anymore hoping for anything, God. I come into your, expect, in your presence knowing what you can do. See, when you've been in the presence of God, you change. So you no longer hope that he might come through. You expect that he will. And guys, if we can get to this place of holy expectancy and couple that with holy obedience, don't forget he still had to go dip. But when we begin to, to partner this ever-growing knowledge and faith in God and begin to create this holy expectancy and then couple that with holy obedience, here's what happens. It turns into more faith and it turns into confidence that I can begin to say, I know who he is and I know what he's done and I know that he'll do it again. See, this has all become the new normal for me. But I had to adjust myself. I had to adjust my expectations into the calling and the promise that God had shown me and given me for almost a decade. And guys, even in the moments that things may not play out exactly like you want them to or need them to, I can still come into the presence of God expectant because I know he can. So see, there's a difference in hoping and expecting. Name and learn that. I'll give you one more thing from this story and in mind. I'm going to do this in the form of a question as we land. It's got a simple question. It's this. What's delaying you from jumping? For Naaman, it was pride. He thought he was owed something better. And while he was learning about the God of Israel, he still knew who he was. And so his pride got in the way. And again, I don't know if he, his leprosy lingered for a day, a month. I don't know the time in between, but I know it lasted longer than it had to. For me, it was insecurity. And it was financial security. It was fear of rejection. But I guarantee you there's probably something that's holding you up. You're standing on the edge of a cliff that you feel like God has been nudging you toward. There's a decision. There's something that you would love to step into, jump into, and you keep getting tripped up. What is it that's delaying your jump? Is it pride? Is it fear? Is it courage? Is it, is it greed? Is it selfishness? Is it jealousy? You're so worried about living up to or wanting someone else's life that you're not living yours? Is it just awareness? Is it knowledge of who God is? Is it distractions, priorities? Maybe it's habits and sin. I don't know, but there's something that's delaying your jump. I just want you to be encouraged. Coming from a guy who knows that all, all it does is, is it delays the journey. So I asked myself this question, and this was the question that really led up to me making is this. What does thinking like this continue to cost me? If, if I continue to buy into these lies, if I continue to, to, to think into these things, if I continue to give space in my mind, what is it ultimately costing me? Is it costing me time, ministry? Is it costing me my witness? Is it costing my, my, me my emotional and spiritual health? Is it costing God using me? through someone else's story, and the answer for, for all of that was yes for me. 
So I just want to encourage you, don't delay. See, delaying the jump simply delays the journey. And I want everything life has to offer me. And the more I age, the older I get, the more I realize I don't have forever. So I'm going to tell you, I'm way quicker to jump. I'm way quicker to act upon and follow where God is leading and calling me to jump. And it's awesome. I don't have to know all the details. See, that's been the best part of this journey is I didn't know all the details. I don't have to have guarantees because I have God. And he will continue to walk with me and equip me and empower me to do whatever it is that he's called me to. And guys, that's enough for me. And he will equip and empower and walk with you wherever your jump leads as well. Stand with me. Father, this morning, make us jumpers. God, author your story in our lives in new ways. Father, I pray that you continue to grow holy discontentment in us if it means us jumping into something greater. God, I pray that you, you just pester us if it takes a decade. If it means jumping with greater faith into what it is that you've called us to be a part of and the purposes that you've created us. God, I pray for people in this, this audience today who, who know what jump they need to make but haven't. God, I pray that you won't let them sleep tonight without at least considering that vision and breakthrough will follow jumping based on this dissatisfaction they're feeling. God, I pray that you encourage us and empower us to do more than just float. God, and I'm so thankful that I'm on a speedboat now, and I don't even know where it's going, but I know you're driving. So, Father, thank you. God, I'm thankful that you took care of my fears. I'm, 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 I'm thankful that you... You provided confidence relationally for me. But God, even if you hadn't, I would have still jumped and I'll still jump again. Because I've seen you do it. And if I never see it again, I know you can. So God, let us live with that sort of confidence. Let us live with that sort of security. And God, I just pray that you bless us in our faith. Because you are a God that is always faithful, never failing. God, thank you for what you do. We pray this through your son's name. Amen.